Good morning. So hey, it's good to be with you guys. Uh, this is my first Sunday preaching in this building, so if you're uh, new this morning here with us, uh, this is a good sign to be here. It's new for both of us in different ways, and, and so we've been in the book of Galatians. Evan's been leading us through that. He's uh, uh, done a great job so far, but what I want to do just to start things off this morning is give a bit of review. And so in this letter, the Apostle Paul, he's writing uh, to the church that he planted just a bit earlier in his career on one of his missionary journeys. And, and so far, this letter hasn't been his warmest. Um, he's actually been pretty direct with his people. And, and, you know, most of Paul's letters, they begin with like a greeting that typically says something like, to God's church in this place, I think of you always in my prayers with thanksgiving, uh, something like that. Uh, but in this letter, he begins a bit differently. That greeting is very short, and it's like, hey, to that church over there, right? And, and by verse 10 in this letter, he's already cursed some of these people twice, and he's literally told them that he's not looking to win any popularity points with them, but instead he's writing to defend the truth, and he's writing to give them what he, or what we like to call here, like dad talks, right? You've heard Evan say that before. And so that's the point of this letter, like some tough love for the Galatians. And it's because what he's going to argue and defend in this letter is some of the most important things for us to know as believers. And, and so it begins by asserting the authority of his message. And he says uh, that it was given to him directly by Christ. And then he, he goes on to remind us that the apostles affirm the authority of his message. And then he, he even cites a time that he corrected one of the apostles and and peter submitted not to paul but to the validity of his message and so after all of that foundation is set that's when paul begins to remind the galatians of what this message is and why it's so important and, and so last week evan preached that message to us it's the same one that paul has given to the galatians that the gospel of jesus christ is that we are made right with the father only through our faith in Jesus Christ, who already did everything possible to reconcile us to the Father. And, and, and so that faith alone in Christ alone is what gives one access to the promises of God. And so that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. I think that's everything that Paul is trying to talk, to, um, talk about in this portion of the letter in chapter 3. And so Paul and Evan and myself um, haven't been here, aren't here today to debate the truth of that message, but to defend it and proclaim it once more to you. And so this morning, it's my goal that all of us walk away either reminded or, or convinced that there's nothing that we've done or could do to earn access to the promises of God, but instead that Jesus is the only one who could and has done everything to make good on God's promises to us. I want us to be a people obedient to Christ, not because we think we get anything for it, but because we recognize what we've already gotten because of him. And so this morning, I want all of us to consider, do we believe that Christ's cross is enough? Like, that's the question. Do we believe that Christ's cross is enough? And so in our text this morning, we're going to look at two major arguments that these false teachers are trying to bring to the Galatians, because they're arguing that faith in Christ's cross isn't enough. And then we'll see the two objections that they have, um, that Paul makes to their arguments, as well as the correction that he adds to them. And so right off the bat, here are the two arguments that these false teachers have brought to the church in, in Galatia. First, they say that in order to be part of the 
God's people, you have to become an Israelite, because after all, the Jews are God's people. Israel is his nation. Jesus is their Messiah. And second, the second argument that they make is that in order to receive the promises that God made to his people, you must live according to the laws that he's given his people. And so listen, at first uh, first glance, this seems pretty reasonable, right? There's a reason the Galatians were falling for these lies. So for something like a thousand years, God had worked uh, uniquely through the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. He gave them the law through Moses. He gave them the land of Canaan. He set up his tabernacle amongst them in the desert. He set up his temple with them in Jerusalem. He spoke to their kings and he gave them the prophets, the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ was to be born to them. So what more evidence do you need that God has a special favor with these people? And so, of course, if you want to be close to God, you have to go where he so obviously is. And to be where God is, obviously, you have to be accepted by the people that he accepts. If you're going to accept God, be accepted by God, you have to be accepted by God's people. And obviously, to do that, you have to do what his people do. And if you want access to all these things he's given these people, you have to abide by their rules. And isn't that something that we teach our children today, right? My house, my rules. And so this is what these people are teaching and telling the Galatians, God's family, God's house, God's rules. What could be wrong with that? So this morning, I want to see what Paul has to say about that line of thinking. So we'll begin again in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, that answers that. Cleared that right up, right? Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So Paul goes right after their ideas. He looks at these people and rhetorically asks, do you really think that you received the promises by the works of the law? Paul's asking, what on earth do you think you did to make yourself worthy of the spirit of God? And he keeps going, are you that foolish to think that after receiving that spirit, that now you're going to perfect yourself and gain access to all the promises of God on your own? And so he's asking the question, how has that been working for you so far? How has your attempt at perfection been working so far? Paul's challenging them in the next verse, in verse 5, to to name one person, one prophet, one Israelite who did miraculous things by the power of the law or if it was faith in the power of the Spirit. And of course the answer is no one and they can't. So Paul's criticizing these teachers before raising objection number one. And already, I think we should be seeing the big holes in their argument. And, and just to be sure, Paul gives clear objections to their claims that, ha- that you have to be an Israelite to be God's people. So let's see what he says about that beginning in verse 6. He says, Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith 
are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So Paul in this chapter, man, he's taking these kids to school. He, he, he just took them all the way back to Genesis, uh, to their guy, Abraham. Abraham, the one who God made like the promises to, like capital P promises, the big ones. And so if you don't know yet what those promises are, I need you to pay attention for the next few minutes at least, and I need you to write this down, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. So Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God tells Abraham to leave everything that he knows and to go, and that God promises to lead him to a land where he'll give him an inheritance, and that God will make him a great nation so that he'll be a blessing to the entire world, that he and all the families of the earth would be blessed so Abraham packs up and he goes. That's Genesis 12. And, and so Genesis 15, verse 4 through 6, God makes a covenant with Abraham and promises Abraham that he'll give him a son and that one day all the sons of Abraham, all the descendants, will be as numerous as the stars. And this is what Paul quotes, verse 6, and he believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. And then Genesis 17, verses 4 through 8, Abraham will be a father of many nations, and God will be their God, and they will be his people in that land of promise forever. Let's keep that up on the screen for a moment, because this is the capital P promise. Like, this is the promise of promises. Genesis 17, if ever there's a passage for you to remember, it's this one. Because first he promised a land, then he promised a people, and then he promised a multitude of peoples in one land with God forever. That's the promise. So write that down, take a picture of the screen, whatever you have to do, because God promises Abraham that he'll be the father of a multitude of nations who will come together in one land as one people with God as their God forever. That's the promise. So if you didn't catch it yet, Here's Paul's glaring objection to the claim that you have to be of Israel to be God's people. First, it's that Abraham himself was a Gentile. Like he and the promise obviously predate the people group that God is promising will one day exist. And second, that from the beginning, the promise was always that there would be a multitude of nations in the family of God. And so Paul quotes Genesis 15 to illustrate that the way you become one of God's people, one of Abraham's son, is the same way that Abraham did through faith and not through whatever nation or people you belong to. And Genesis 17, the full promise is revealed and made by God. And only after that promise is made does the sign and the law come. The sign and the law come after the promise. So how can they be a prerequisite? And so that's objection one. Paul shows them that the promise is not only for the Jew, but for every person who believes in the God of promise and all the promises he's made. And then he comes to objection two, beginning in verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the, in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified by for, uh, before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. 
So I said it before, he's taking these guys to school, but now he's going like graduate level. When was the last time any of us here read Habakkuk? How many of us forgot that that was even in there? Right? But, but Paul, he not only takes them through the same law that they're trying to say is a requirement to have access to the promises, but he also goes to the prophets. He goes to Habakkuk. And, and so in these uh, three verses above, he's quoted already three Old Testament references pointing out and making evident that it was never accordance to the law that gave you access to the promises. And so he quotes Habakkuk to prove that, that the promises were never dependent on adherence to the law and that the promise instead came always through faith just as it always had. And so this argument that he makes in these three verses alone is so clear and so concrete that he doesn't even need to point out the fact that the promises were made 400 plus years before the law. So, so just a recap so far. False teachers came into the church and they say, hey, in order to be accepted by God, you have to become like us. And not only do you have to become like us, but in order to receive God's promises and for the cross to be effective for you, you have to abide by our laws so that if you don't become like us and you don't follow these rules, then God doesn't want you and neither do we. And Paul hears this, that it's happening in one of his churches and he gets mad and so he writes this letter to just rip apart these teachings and he gives them the truth that, listen, there is no nation or people in the world that you have to become a part of to be accepted as one of God's people or to be a son of Abraham. And the promises of God are received through nothing but faith alone in grace alone as a gift from God so that there is nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do to earn what God gives as a gift. And in fact, according to the law and according to the prophets, if you try to work to gain what God's promised, not only will you lose out, but you're putting yourself under a curse. And this is why Paul is so aggressive in his attack against these teachings. Because these people aren't just trying to re rebuild the veil that Christ tore down. These false teachers aren't just adding to the gospel. They're destroying it. And they're taking people down with them in the process. And so, yeah, Paul's ripping these false teachers apart their teachings apart, and then he corrects them and presents them with the truth. Galatians 13 through 14. That Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So according to the law, in order to live by the law, you have to keep the law. But not one of us is able to do that. So instead, we're condemned by the law, and it becomes a curse for us. But the gospel message that Paul's defending and preaching is that for our sake, God made him sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, that the law cursed us all because none of us were able to keep it. And most of us don't care to. But Christ in love, while we were still sinners, chose to take on our sin and its curse in exchange for his righteousness. 
So that just like Abraham believed God's promises and was declared righteous, you and I can believe in the work and promises of Christ and become and declared righteous. And this makes us sons of Abraham as promised, children of God from a multitude of nations who will one day dwell with God as his people in one land of promise forever because God makes good on his promises. So if you believe in the God of Abraham, then you believe in this promise which Jesus did and is and will bring to its full fruition so that all who believe are made heirs and children of promise, sons of Abraham. And so listen, I I spent most of my time this morning walking through Paul's argument like step by step because I think it's so important for us to understand And there are so many ways that we fall into the same traps and kind of thinking as the Galatians did. And I need us to see that so we know how to protect ourselves from it, but also to call it out when it raises its head. And it's hard. You know, we live in a country where from our youth we're taught how great it is and how great that makes us. And there's some pretty great perks to being a citizen of this nation But when I read my history books and I learn how other nations treated its original inhabitants, what they did or did to them to become conquerors of that land, and then I read our own textbooks and our own history, and I wonder how different we really are. And when I see how we treat people who are fleeing for their lives and seeking sanctuary, I wonder if that's how Christ should treat me when I try to enter his kingdom. So it's really easy to look at those who aren't like us and determine they can't be one of us. And it's really easy to believe that we're more deserving than they are. And it's tempting to tell people that they have to become like us to be worthy or to have value. But the truth is, the only person that any of us should strive to be like or call others to do the same is Christ. And the good news is despite how epically we fail at that goal, Jesus' cross took the curse and his resurrection gifted us with righteousness so that in order to become sons of Abraham and recipients of God's promises, all we have to do is believe and it's credited to us. Amen? So here's where this becomes practical for us. Here's why this is important for us to, uh, to understand. It's that being a child of God doesn't make us more important or valuable, or better than those around us. But it's really easy to think so. It's so easy for us today to see people who may come into the church and think they must become like us to be one of us. It's easy to think that our traditions make us more spiritual or earn us more favor with God, that this song is more holy than that one, that somehow the sins that we keep so secret are less sinful than the ones that are evident in others. That our liturgical order brings more glory to God than their charisma, whatever it may be. Paul condemns all of that and says it's foolish. And instead, the only tradition or practices that have any value worth advocating for or defending so strongly are the ones which Christ himself modeled or his word commends. And so certainly, there are things that we do that are good things, practices, traditions, that have wonderful benefits to us. But we distort the gospel when we make them requirements on people in order to bring them to God. 
And so every time we tell someone that they must look like us or do what we do, we're telling them that Christ and his promises aren't good enough for them. And the second reason Paul's message is so vital for us is that despite our attempts to obey the law and look a certain way, and it's embarrassing how far we fall from achieving that, that we have this blessing to know that despite our failures and shortcomings, God's promises will prevail because they're not dependent on anything that we've done or could do, but only on the grace of God and his work on our behalf. And, and so every time we think that we have to work to earn forgiveness or access to God's promises, we're telling Christ that his cross just wasn't enough. And that we need to do, and we think we can add to whatever he's already done. And how arrogant and how naive is that? And how discouraging is that when our attempts constantly fail? So there's so many of us here this morning who are struggling and wrestling with that reality. It's hard to believe, and it's easy to fall for the lies. But we're not alone. And so all of us fall short of the glory of God, but the only thing that our works earn us is a curse. But Christ took and crucified our failures on a tree with himself, and he put them in the grave, and he held them there for three days, and then he left them there at his resurrection. And in their place, he hands us righteousness as a gift. So Christ gives us his spirit who testifies to our spirit that we are children of God, sons of Abraham, through faith. So this morning I want to encourage you to have faith, not just in the forgiveness of your sins and reconciliation you have with God the Father through Christ, but also in the capital P promises of God, because it's a promise for you and your offspring forever. And so if you're here this morning and you're staring death in the face, Whatever it is, for some it's a general fear of the unknown. For others, it's that disease that you're battling. You can feel that your time's at hand. Others have loved ones that you're preparing to mourn. Some of us feel like we're losing a battle with certain sins. Some of us just want to give up altogether and let it win. Some of you are angry with God. Some of you feel distant from God. Some of you feel alone. This morning, I want to remind you of the promises of God. That for those who believe, you know that the battle with sin ends with victory because Christ had victory. For those who believe, uh, who, who you know that there's no reason to fear death because it's only temporary for us. This curse that was once so devastating is now nothing more than an inconvenience. And the resurrection life that comes after is perfect and forever. And some of those who have lost loved ones or will lose loved ones, if they're right with the Lord, if they're his children, the resurrection is there for them too. Because it's part of the promise. And we'll be with them again in that land of promise forever. See, Christ's cross is enough to cure any curse that you feel you're under. And there's no law and there's no sin and there's no people that can keep you from receiving your part in his kingdom and his family if you believe. The cross is enough and faith makes you sons of Abraham. And so that's the message that Paul so emphatically defends in this letter. And so will I. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you for your word, for the law, for the prophets, for the Psalms, for wisdom literature, for all the letters, Lord, that they come together in this beautiful way that we can see all the way from the beginning, from Genesis, you made a promise, Lord, and all the way through these people that you worked in, you were actually just opening a wider door for all people. Lord, that the promise was always for all people who put their faith in you and your promises because you always make good on your promises. And Lord Christ, thank you that you are willing to give up everything for a people so undeserving. Lord, that your cross is enough and your resurrection grants us righteousness. Lord, thank you for that gift. Remind me that there's nothing I can do to make myself more worthy of it. There's nothing I can do to make myself more perfect. It's only you. It's only you. Pray that all of us would believe that that was true this morning. We ask this in your name. Amen.